Hey, you're listening to the Mountain Park Church Podcast. My name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're so thankful to be pressing into the presence of God with you. The beating heart of our church, the mandate that we feel Jesus and the Spirit and the Father have given us is to ignite a deep hunger and longing for the presence of Jesus and his spirit-driven formational work in you for the sake of the world around you. We are passionate about having a culture that is, is driven toward intimacy, toward obedience, toward walking in uh, the kingdom gifts and power and authority that Jesus carries with him, um, that he's given us through the life of the Spirit in us. And um, whether you're listening to this uh, locally here in the Niagara region, or you're somewhere else, or uh, whenever you're listening to this, we're just, uh, we're calling you and we're calling ourselves uh, into a place of deeper intimacy. We're calling you and we wanna provoke the Spirit of God in you to hunger and thirst uh, and long for Jesus in deeper and more significant ways. We've been uh, walking through the book of James for a little while now. I think that this week is our 10th week. We're stepping into the end of chapter four, the beginning of chapter five. And I had a great friend, uh, Jeff McLeod, who pastors a sister church of ours, not too far from here in the Waterloo region of Southern Ontario in Canada. He uh, is preaching today. You're gonna hear him today. And I'm just so thankful for him, for the gifts and calling and anointing that God has given him. There were some really profound things. I shouldn't be surprised about that, but there were some profound things, I think, that the Holy Spirit was speaking through Jeff. And so without further ado, this is Jeff McLeod as we step into our next part of the series we're in, in the book of James. As we head into our message today, I'm gonna to invite Connor, wherever he is, to come on up. Connor's going to read for us today, but um, just as a reminder, as we're in this book of James, James is writing to uh, his friends, his community, um, people that we would call Messianic Jews in the first century, and they're people in his community that have been dispersed under persecution. They've been kind of driven all throughout the Roman Empire. And James has a pastoral urgency to write to his friends, his family, his neighbors, his church family, and give them pastoral counsel for how they can live the way of Jesus in a culture that is totally against it. And uh, so James says application, obviously for the first listeners, but also for us today. And so if you've got your James little scripture journal, grab it right now, or your smartphone is a, that's a substandard second, but Connor's got like the full Bible here, which is even better, but, uh, Amazing. So let's stand together as Connor reads from James uh, 4.13 to 5, whatever it is. <laughs> Thanks, Pastor. Warning about self-confidence. Look here, you who say, today or tomorrow we are going to a certain town and we'll stay there a year. We will do business there and make a profit. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here for a little while, then it's gone. What you ought to say is if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that. Otherwise, you are boasting about your own pretentious plans, and all such boasting is evil. Remember, it is a sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. Look here, you rich people. Weep and groan with anguish because of all the tr terrible troubles ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away, and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Great scripture. <laughs> Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. 
This corroded treasure you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. For listen, hear the cries of the field workers from whom you have cheated of their pay. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed innocent people who do not resist you. Dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmers who patiently wait for the rains in the fall and in the spring. They eagerly look for the valuable harvest to ripen. You too must be patient. Take courage for the coming of the Lord is near. Don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. For look, the judge is standing at the door. For examples of patience in suffering, dear brothers and sisters, look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We give great honor to those who endure under suffering. For instance, you know about Job, a man of great endurance. You can see how the Lord was kind to him at the end, for the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. Amen. Okay, you can have a seat. While you're doing that, I'm going to invite my friend Jeff to come up. And I want, let's just welcome him as he comes this morning. As you've heard through our reading, this is a pretty light passage, like bubble gum and candy here. <laughs> um, this is my friend Jeff McLeod. Uh, he and his wife Carrie and their family, they live in the Waterloo region. He pastors at a church, a sister church of ours in Waterloo, and I've just really appreciated his friendship uh, over the last number of years and uh, the calling that God has given him on his life and his anointing to uh, bring that into being. And so I'm going to pray for you, and let's pray for Jeff as we start this morning. Father, we just again humble ourselves before you. And just like we've sung already today, Jesus, you alone are worthy of our praise. We're not here to exalt ourselves. We're not here to glorify our own name. We're here to come under your leadership, Jesus, under your goodness and under your life, under your words that are life and are truth. We bring ourselves under you, Jesus. We dedicate ourselves to you this morning. And I commend any unholy power that is present here, as uh, the gathered people of God are here, I command any unholy power that's here uh, to be restrained right now. I forbid you from interfering in any way with the heart and the will of the Father. Any unclean spirits that are here that have legal rights or grounds in anyone's life, I suspend them right now during the duration of this message in the name of Jesus. Um, we just separate ourselves from the kingdom of darkness and all of its influence and all of its effects. And we command every principality, ruler, authority, and power that is present here to be obedient to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We bring ourselves under his word and we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would anoint Jeff to uh, preach um, the words that are coming from the heart of the Father this morning, we ask that you would open our ears to hear and just give us revelation even in our minds, Father, as we come under your word this morning. We love you, and we just invite your ministry, Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, Jeff. Amen. Thanks, man. Thanks. It's, uh, it's so great to be here uh, with you folks this morning. What a time of worship, eh? Yeah, yeah. It, it, it was so good, actually, that my watch started vibrating, saying, you may be in a harmful zone. And, and so I, I spoke against the evil and hit cancel all and, uh, and continued to worship. So thank you, worship team, and thank you, Mountain Park, for hosting uh, myself and Carrie here in Niagara Falls. Like Andrew said, we're uh, in the Waterloo area at a sister church. Uh, we won't tell you what church, because then you could email them. And then I'm accountable for everything I say. Uh, so you're in the book of James. Uh, that's pretty exciting to be in the book of James. But how many have found the book of James to be a little bit challenging? It's okay if you're honest for a sec, right? You know, when you read some of the things like our passage today and, and you're challenged by the things that Pastor James says to us, it can be, it can be difficult to process. It can be uh, difficult to hear these words and to look at our lives and to kind of go, oh, that's so tough. That's so, that's just so hard to live. It's, it's hard to swallow 
at times when we hear from scripture like that. Did you know a guy named Martin Luther? Uh, he's sort of the author of the Reformation. It's kind of how we got Protestantism and all of that stuff. Any, everybody know who he is? He actually lobbied to have the book of James removed from the canon. Right? Like that. He would read James and agonize so deeply over the, the words that James was, was saying in this letter that he was like, this can't possibly be scripture because we can't live this. But we can. We can because, you know, a lot of us would say that James is a difficult book, but it's only a difficult book if we read it without the lens of the cross. But you see, when we read James through the lens of the cross, it transforms things, doesn't it? It changes absolutely everything. And so often it's a difficult book for us to hear because like James says, we live kind of in one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world. And so we have this battle that's happening in each of us that, that kind of wants to embrace the world, but then wants to live in God's kingdom. And so we hear the words and we struggle and we agonize through them. But when we see them through the lens of the saving work of Jesus Christ, the burdens can be lifted and you can hear the words of James and rejoice and live in the midst of true freedom and true grace. As far as I'm concerned, folks, this is just simply my opinion. It really doesn't mean much. But I think that the book of James is probably one of the best books in the New Testament. If you want to just get straightforward, bare bones honesty about what uh, we're called to live, each and every one of us here on earth, as we manifest God's kingdom amongst us. And so let's jump into today's passage and we'll see what James is going to give us today. So I'm not going to read it over again. It's already been read, but I will highlight uh, some sections. So this final section of James, you got another message after this. So we're kind of coming, we're turning that corner. You can begin to see the finish line. But this final section of James's epistle, it sums up, it begins a process of summing up the, the argument of his letter. One of the primary themes, I don't know if you've noticed, is uh, wealth and poverty. It seems to be something that James keeps nipping at, doesn't he? This concept of wealth and poverty and how we interact with that in our world. And he's building off of uh, all the way in chapter one. And so you'll notice that about James uh, as he, he's walking through, he will reference back like I mean, you have to pay attention, but he will reference back to things that he said earlier. And so what he's doing in this passage is he's kind of bookending something that he talked about in chapter one. He's now readdressing it in chapter four and five. And so James chapter one, verses nine to 11, you might remember this from a while ago. Believers who are poor have something to boast about for God has honored them. And those who are rich should boast that God has humbled them. They will fade away like a little flower in the field. The hot sun rises and the grass withers. The little flower drops and falls. And its beauty fades away. In the same way, the rich will fade away with all of their achievements. And so chapter four and five isn't really something new that's being introduced to us. It's him revisiting something that he's already based into the book already. So today's passage uh, is James bringing his argument closer to its conclusion. And so the way that I uh, would look at this, now it, it is addressed uh, mostly to uh, Messianic Jews, to Christians, but there is actually times where there's debate in this book of who it is that James is addressing and the the lovely passage that that pastor Andrew gave me is one of those passages where there's debate amongst scholarship of of who is it that he's addressing so let's just simplify that and just say he's addressing us 
Now, in context, in verses uh, 13 to 17 of chapter 4, he's addressing what they think is wealthy Christian merchants. So these are people who go around and travel and they sell uh, different things in order to make a profit. But we, we do believe that they were Christians that he's speaking to and, and were Christians that were uh, probably part of his community at one point, but have been scattered around and are now traveling in order to make money. And then in chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, this is where some of the debate lies in scholarship, where they believe that he's addressing Christians, but possibly also addressing non-Christians, where he's warning them that God is the final judge. And in chapter 5, verses 7 to 11, bringing our passage uh, to an end for today, he, he flips things a little bit and is addressing the broader church again because he's encouraging them to be patient as they endure some of the things that he's just spoke about above. And so let's unpack the passage a little bit and then we'll jump into some application for our lives and and what it is that I think that James is trying to do here. So this this opening phrase uh, that the New Living Translation, I think it does a really good job uh, with that. The New Living Translation says, look here. Right? So it grabs our attention. Look here. Do you know that this is the only time in the entire New Testament in, these, in, in chapter 4 and in chapter 5 that that phrase out of the Greek text is actually used? The only time in the entire New Testament. And so that tells us something. It tells us that it's jumping out at us. And if you know anything about uh, uh, the Hellenistic nature, so all, all that means is that the Jews have been Greekified. Right, That's what Hellenism means. And so the Jews have become Hellenistic in nature. And this, this phrase, look here, uh, is a common Hellenistic or Greek phrase that's used to demand someone's full attention. And so it's really important in, in James's book. Like a, a different rendition of it could be, are you kidding me? Like, that's how the text reads, right? So look here, are you kidding me? Or, or maybe, oh, come on. Really? So as you read it in that context, it shifts it a little bit, right? So look here, oh, come on, are you kidding me? It's kind of similar to when Jesus says, anyone who has ears to hear should listen. He's calling us to attention. And his tone is really similar to the passages in verses 1 to 10 of chapter 4. Essentially, folks, this look here is James's way of saying, wake up. This is something that we all need to hear. This matters. This is important. This is challenging. Now, James goes right at these Christian merchants, these folks who travel and sell goods to make a living. In verse 13, he says, look here, right? Or are you kidding me? Today or tomorrow, we are going to a certain town and we'll stay there a year. We will do business there and make a profit. I don't know about you, but when I first read that, I'm like, okay. So, like, I mean... At, at the church that I'm from, we just uh, completed our five-year strategic priority document. It was awesome. Right? So, so life-giving to a pastor to create my five-year strategic priority document, right? So, so what's wrong with planning? It, it doesn't seem like there's any issue. These, these merchants are just going to go and they're going to earn a living. They're going to go from this town to that town, and they're just going to earn a living. What is the problem here? I don't get it. It seems kind of weird. Nothing. Nothing's wrong with planning. You can't pluck that out of the text and say, oh, James doesn't want us to plan. The early uh, Pentecostals, anybody familiar with Pentecostals? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Woo, woo. Yeah, my wife grew up Pentecostal. I think she might have been born under a Pentecostal pew. Um, but uh, the Pentecostals in their early uh, inception would just show up, sit down, and wait. They would just show up, sit down, 
and wait. Sometimes for hours, they would just sit and they would wait. And they would wait for the Lord to tell them what was next, to tell them where to go. They wouldn't even, you ready for this? They wouldn't even pick songs. There was no planning. What's it? They didn't even know what chords they were going to play. I, I'm not sure that they had pink Stratocasters uh, back then. James is not saying that there's something wrong with planning. What he's saying, what he's more concerned about is who are you relying on for your plans? Who are you relying on for your plans? How are your plans being birthed? How do they come to be? He's pointing out that, that they're being quite self-sufficient as they plan. In other words, they're relying on themselves to make the plans that they're making. They're not giving up their plans to the creator of the heavens and the earth. James makes his point by explaining how fragile life really is. In verse 14, he says, how do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? I hope my life is one pound less than it is today. But how do I know? Right? Some of the things that I do today could kind of dictate whether that's my future for tomorrow, but really, how do I know what's going to happen tomorrow? Your life, he says, is like the morning fog. A, a better interpretation of that in the original text would, would be like a mist or a vapor. And so the, the only reason I don't like fog is because fog can stay for a while. And so mist or vapor is better because it's there and then it just disappears kind of think vaping, right? Nobody here does that, but uh, just think, you blow it out and it just, it's there and it's gone and you have one day less of your life. He says, life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while and then it's gone. You know, folks, if we were honest with ourselves, we have no idea what tomorrow really, truly is going to look like. We might hope it looks a certain way, but we, we don't truly know if we'll even wake up tomorrow. Now, I, I know that sounds morbid, but folks, like I could walk out of this building, trip on the steps, crack my head open and be done. Yeah, I'll, I'll wait till I'm off your property uh, for some kind of tragic accident to happen. It, it's, it's morbid. We don't like to think about it, but the reality is, is the one promise that we do have is death. It's the one thing that I guarantee will happen to you one day. And we don't know when it is. And so how do we even know what tomorrow's going to bring? How do I even know, like I, I have plans to go have lunch or to go do this or to go do that, but how do I know that those plans won't fall apart? And then how do I react when those plans do fall apart? James says in this passage that thinking our plans must happen the way that we plan them is actually pretentious. It's, it's actually arrogant. And he, he goes as far to say it's evil. Now, why would he do that? Why would he go as far to say that, that thinking that, that, that what you've planned for the future is definitely going to happen the way that you planned it uh, is pretentious, arrogant, and evil? It's because we're holding on to our plans with a closed fist. So we're going to get into that a little bit deeper in the message. But we have no idea what's going to happen next. Then we, we get another transition in the passage when we jump to, to chapter 5. Another look here, like, are you kidding? Uh, an, are, are you serious, you rich people? For real? That's the way that you're, that you're going to be? So James warns those who place all of their self-worth, all of their, their comfort or their peace, in their identity, in wealth. Those who need to hoard their money in order to feel in control. He's, he's actually, he's pretty harsh about it if you read the passage, right? He says, he says, your gold and silver are corroded. This is verse three. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. 
wow, James, like you're, you're really passionate about this. He says, this corroded treasure you've hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. I think James is pretty convinced that relying on wealth as a way of success, a way of, of building your self-worth, of, of resting your identity in your wealth is nothing but a colossal waste of this life. A sin against God, James would say, a lie from the enemy that many in our culture believe and live by. You see, see to James, this way of thinking and living it's, it's what leads you to death. It takes away your freedom and it holds you hostage. So much so, folks. So much so that sometimes we'll cheat innocent people and do horrible things all in the name of wealth. In chapter four, he says, for listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you've cheated of their pay. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. Now, this passage is interesting to me. I spent uh, eight years pastoring a church in Norfolk County. Uh, actually, Herm used to be at this church years ago, and Andrew grew up uh, some of his younger years there in Norfolk County, Simcoe, Ontario. Does anyone know where that is? Yes, yes. Uh, so, this concept of rich farmers rings uh, with me because that's what our congregation was full of. Uh, and it was funny, they, they did a protest one time. And so a lot of our farmers would, would constantly be complaining, you know, the, the government this and that, and, you know, we're not making enough money. And, you know, as, the, as it's, you know, Farmer Joe on their license plate of their Escalade. And then they did a, they did a, a protest uh, it was kind of funny to watch where they got all their tractors together and uh, they lined the tractors up and they drove through Norfolk County on their tractors on John Deere's that were worth, you know, 500 to a million, 500,000 to a million dollars. And you're like, what is, what is going on here as we bring migrant workers in to do the work? Where's our priorities lying? What, what is happening here? And, and in this passage, there's a similar thing going on. He's addressing these rich farmers who cheat their workers of their fair wage. Now, the way that this happened historically in James's time is a little bit different than today. When you did an honest day's work, you got an honest day's pay. And you would get that pay at the end of the day. And so what a lot of farmers would do is they would hold back that pay. Because, you know, the best way to feel good about yourself and about your wealth is to hold on to it as long as you possibly can. And so they would withhold that pay for another extra day or so. And these workers wouldn't be able to put food on their tables because they were relying on that pay. So now this is where the debate comes. Is he talking to non-Christians or is he talking to Christians? Because Christians would know better, right? I think he's talking to both. I think he's talking to both because I think it would have existed that even within their messianic community, there was people who had done well and people who were hoarding their wealth. Then James really goes for it here. Like he, like he really knocks it out of the park with this one. James 5, verses 5 to 6, he says, You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. That really hits home. You have condemned and killed innocent people who do not resist you. You see, folks, to James, those who love money more than God are the ones who seek to satisfy their every desire. In our culture today, it would point you toward that. Whatever it is that you desire, you need to seek that pleasure. You need to fulfill that pleasure. Whatever it is, you, you deserve it. And James says that this leads a person to do horrible things to others, horrible things that God, the creator of the heavens and earth, will keep you accountable for. So now he shifts 
So he's addressed these major issues that he's really passionate about. And now he shifts his letter back toward this messianic community, the church, because he's going to talk about how do we deal with that kind of oppression? How do we live in that kind of a world? And he wants to help the church to know how to live what we would call a spirit-filled life, or the Apostle Paul would call a spirit-filled life. Even though that greed and self-sufficiency are the things that were often taught within our culture, how do we change? How do we shift away from self-sufficiency and completely rely on God? He says in verse 7, Dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmers, so he references farmers again, who patiently wait for the rains in the fall and in the spring. They eagerly look for the vulnerable, valuable, sorry, uh, harvest to ripen. Farmers in James's time, it's a little bit different now, right? Because like, if you need rain in the time of James, like you just, you couldn't create rain. You had to rely completely on the Lord for the rain. So you could do all the work that needed to be done, right? Which is is a good stewardship. You're doing the hard work. You're working a hard day out in the field and and you're you're planting the seeds. You're you're doing everything that you need to do. But the problem is, is you cannot produce rain. You can't produce the climate that you need for that crop to grow. And so James is saying that is evidence of faith. That is what faith is like. Now, look at what we've distorted that into today. Now we have irrigation ponds, right? And we, and we, we put stuff in the soil to make the soil better. And we start to try to do the work of the Lord on our own in the name of wealth. And that's what James is getting at here. And so he says, you you instead need to be patient and endure and trust in the Lord for the rain, for the crop, because God will give you exactly what you need. Farmers are the perfect example in James's time of what faith looked like. I think it's great advice. Be patient. Be willing to endure oppressive things and wait on the Lord to fulfill his promises. And then he puts a little twist, you know, one that, that I, you know, I would agree with in the life of the church. He says, and do all of that without grumbling. Right? Do all of that without emailing Pastor Andrew. Even, even if it leads to suffering. So patiently endure, have faith that God will provide, wait on the rain. Don't grumble about it, right? So retired farmers in Norfolk County, right? My son's ruining the farm. Everything, you know, is falling apart because the next generation has taken over. Don't don't do any of that. Don't grumble. Wait, even though you might suffer. Don't take on an attitude, folks, that lacks gratitude. So as we wait on the Lord, as we endure oppressive things, as we wait patiently, we do it full of gratitude that the Lord has given us this moment on this day. Tough stuffing. Because God knows, folks, and I think you all know this, God knows what's best for us. And we need to learn to live our lives trusting in this simple fact that God knows what's best for us way better than we know what's best for us because we're living in a Genesis 3 world, right? Don't don't be fooled by thinking we're living in a Genesis 2 world where it's all bliss and beautiful in the garden and we're walking with the Lord. We're living in a Genesis 3 world full of corruption and hate and, and sin. That is our reality, but yet he gives us glimpses of heaven and he invites us to live our lives in his kingdom. But we need to be patient, we need to endure, and we need to press against the evil that's all around us. That's how we manifest God's kingdom here on earth. 
God knows what's best for us. So what is it that James is, is doing here? Andrew told me I had about an hour and a half, somewhere in that, that area, so we're good. Uh, so, so what exactly is James doing here? What's the point that he is trying to get across to the church? Well, I'll, I'll kind of summarize it in one simple statement. It's, a, it's not super simple, but it's the best I could do. Our culture teaches us self-sufficiency, but Jesus calls us to surrender our lives to him. So there's that like good guy, bad guy sort of fight happening on your shoulder. Do I be self-sufficient and rely completely on myself or do I trust in the Lord? Do I surrender my whole self every moment? Do I surrender my mind? Am I renewed in my mind, Romans says. He calls us to surrender our lives to him, to die to self and rely on the leading of his spirit, to be patient and rest in his promises. Things like money and control will never bring you the true freedom that God wants you to live in. So how do we possibly live countercultural in a world that values self-sufficiency and wealth? How do we go about doing this, James? In other words, how do we live by the faith that James calls us to in our passage today? How do we walk out of this place today uh, with some points to go, yeah, I can do that. I think I can live by the power of the Spirit in my life. I can give up some of my, my, my control of planning and I can give it all over the Lord. I can be generous and give up some of my wealth because I can trust that God knows what's best for me. How do we do that? Well, I have three points in a poem for you. And the first is, is to hold on to your plans with open hands. To hold on to your plans with open hands. Since life is a vapor, just something that exists and then disappears right before our eyes, we don't know what tomorrow will bring. It's best, folks, to hold on to our plans with open hands. Because we tend to hold on to our plans really tightly. And James calls us to understand that making plans, saving money, holding on to material things as, as your, your source of comfort will only bring you stress and anxiety. It'll push you further away from the freedom that God wants you to live in. To quote Martin Luther, he says, how does one approach life in light of not knowing the outcome? The incorrect, that is, foolish way is to assume that all will transpire as planned. The more sensible attitude is to assume that whatever happens is always under the control of God. Everyone hold out, hold out your hands and clench your fist. Clench your fist as hard as you can. Do you feel the tension in your arms right now? Now release it, open your hand. Do you see the difference? Let's try it again. Close your fists, real tight, right? Close your eyes. Just feel that in your body. And now release your hands. Do you see the tension just flow out as you live life open-handed? This is what James is saying, folks. Unclench your fists because look at what that creates. It creates tension. It creates anxiety. It creates all, kind of negative, all kinds of negative things if we just sit there like this. But when we sit there like this, we're free of the anxiety. We're free of the tension because we're saying, Lord, I know you know what's best. And so I made some plans. I have some plans, but I'm willing to let you change those plans. And so live, live life open-handed. Be generous and kind to everyone. Now, I don't know about you guys, but that, that can be a really challenging statement. Be generous and kind to only those who are generous and kind to you might be a much better statement. But what James is actually saying is, if you're going to look at wealth properly, if you're going to look at your planning and your, and your need for control that's all bathed in sin, live life open-handed and be generous and kind to everybody because our lives are short and we can't take anything with us, right? 
The rental truck is not coming with you. At least I don't know any funeral home that will allow that. So don't build yourself worth in stuff. Instead, be generous. You see, a life of generosity and kindness is more fulfilling than a life of control and hoarding. Really kind of generosity is better than a life that's all about you. When we focus on others, God's kindness comes through and people will come to know Jesus. In, <laughs> one of the, I didn't grow up in the church. Like I said, my wife uh, was born under a Pentecostal pew. I was not. Um, and, and, uh, and so I didn't come to Christ until I was 21 years old. I'm now 23. <laughs> and, uh, and so some of the, the things that we do as Christians and the way that we try to lead people to Jesus is really fascinating to me. And, and one of the, the best ways that I've tried, and I always mess this up when I try to use this analogy, so just work with me. It might hit you by like Wednesday. But it's, it's like in many ways what we try to do is that we walk into somebody's driveway, we take a screwdriver and we put a hole in the side of their tire and then we retreat back to our car and we get in our car and we wait because we've just pointed out their sin. Right? They now have a flat tire, but they don't know they have a flat tire yet, and we need to bring that to their attention. And so then they drive down the road, and they get a flat tire, and so they have to pull over, and then what do we as Christians do? We come to be the Savior, to point out their sin. That you, hey, you got a flat tire. I can help. And then we say, have you heard of this guy named Jesus? Now, what happens when the person finds out that we're the one who put the flat tire in there in the first place? It kind of falls apart, right? And I don't, I don't understand why we think evangelism is about us as Christians being unkind and pointing fingers at others when Jesus says we have a plank in our own eye. And so what the Bible actually says is that kindness leads to repentance. Kindness is the way that you show Jesus to others because people will come to know Jesus through kindness in Romans. So if you don't believe me, let's read the Bible. Romans chapter two, verse four. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? That's what we point out, right? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? So if God's way of saving people is by showing you his kindness and his patience with you, maybe we should take on the posture of Jesus and show kindness and patience with others and let the Holy Spirit, who's far better than I am, do his work. God's kindness and patience with us is what shows us our sins. So if we're kind and we're patient with others, it opens the door to the Holy Spirit beginning a work in others as well because they see God in us through our kindness. And this, folks, is radical kindness. This isn't just like holding a door. This is sacrificial, radical kindness that we show to the world around us. And my last point, can I get a hallelujah? <laughs> Stop trying to control the outcome of everything. I'm an outcome-based person. I like to see good outcomes. Not a great thing for a pastor. I was a, an addictions counselor. I ran a, a homeless shelter in Hamilton and several addiction programs across the Hamilton area. And in the addiction world, uh, it's less than 2% success rate. So when you're an outcome-based person, that can be pretty frustrating. So stop trying. Stop trying to control the outcome of everything. If we live each day with the open hands that I'm talking about, saturated with kindness, generosity, and patience, the Holy Spirit will guide us in the ways of Jesus. 
But if we insist on being in control, we'll struggle to hear from God. Often when I'm like, oh, I'm just not hearing from the Lord, my wife will say, I know why. You're a control freak. You're always, Jeff, trying to control the outcomes of things. And, and it's funny, it's so true. Whenever I'm trying to control the outcome of everything, I begin to struggle to hear from God. But when I open my hands and I be patient and I endure, the voice of the Spirit just comes alive. Don't try to control the outcome of everything. Let God be the one who's in control. Surrender every moment to him. And folks, you will find the freedom that the scriptures talk about, right? We sing those, those types of songs about freedom, but yet we're so bound. He wants us to be free. And this is the way. Take your fist, open it. You'll experience freedom. Trust that God will fulfill his promise of reconciling us to him, that he will make all things right. Be patient and live by faith rather than self-sufficiency. Let's let Jesus put it in his words in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. A lot of you will be familiar with this verse. Then Jesus says, come to me all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy to bear and the burden I give you is light. So through James, Jesus is giving you a light burden. It doesn't seem like that because we have one foot and one foot there and we struggle with the things that James is saying. But if we believe the words of Jesus Christ, faith is really all James is calling us to. A life of faith and obedience to the king of kings. In so many ways, folks, and we're, we're all guilty of this in one way or another. We love having a kingdom. We're sometimes a little weary of having a king. And that's part of the challenge. We want a kingdom without a king because we want to control the outcome. Folks, this faith-based, Jesus-centric life that James knows from firsthand experience will lead you down the path of righteousness. We suspect that the James that we're talking about is the brother of Jesus. We don't know for sure, but there's a lot of evidence that would show that it's the brother of Jesus. And I don't know if Andrew's addressed this because... Well, to be honest, I don't spend a lot of time watching Andrew's sermons. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I'm kidding, man. I love your preaching. It's good. Um, James, uh, they think this James was the brother of Jesus. And did you know that James, the brother of Jesus, didn't come to faith until after he witnessed the resurrection? Think about that for a minute the brother of Jesus, the one who knows about the first 30 years, because we know very little, right? The one who like hung out with them and did all kinds of probably mischief and all these different things. He didn't, he didn't think his brother was the Messiah. The one who then followed him, because James is present during Jesus's teachings. And, and right, we, we have different passages that show us this. And yet he still, he still didn't believe. It wasn't until he saw his brother die on a Roman cross. And even then he's like, ah, oh, it's over. He wasn't the Messiah because the Messiah can't die, right? There's been lots of Messiahs. Lots of people claim to be the Messiah and then they die in battle. And then on the third day, he rose again. You guys will be talking about that this weekend. And that, that is what woke James up. The James that we're reading about here, the James that is giving us this direction, this call of faith. Because he realized that the evidence of Jesus' Messiahship was in the resurrection. And so how could he not believe? So it sounds difficult when we read James's book without the cross. 
But when we read James's book with the cross and we truly believe that God knows what's best for us, it changes everything. James calls us to surrender our lives to Jesus, to seek his will and to turn our burdens over to him. What is God's will? I know we've all gone out and, and bought books to find the will of God, all that kind of stuff. I'm not gonna preach a whole sermon on God's will, don't worry. God's will is that we would be in a right relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. It's a very simple way to look at what the will of God is. You can find it in Ephesians chapter one, actually, where he says that he wants to reconcile the world to him. And we live in this Genesis chapter three world, but we're kind of stuck between Genesis chapter two, this beautiful garden where we walk in perfect harmony with God. And then we have this Revelation 22 picture, which is so much better. And that is where he's pointing us, folks. And what James is doing is filling in the blanks to say, the best way to get there is to live your life now by faith. Placing your trust and your patience in him. You know who got it right? Tim McGraw. So I'm going to quote Tim McGraw. Live life like you're dying. How many people have the song now rolling in their mind? I could start singing it, but I'll save you from that. I really think he gets it right with that song. If we just were to begin to live life like today was the only day we had, would how you go about living your life change? What would be, what would be your priority? Would it be your strategic planning document for the next five years? Or would you want to live in the moment? Would you want to live in the moment where you're trusting in your Lord and Savior because your life is going to end at the end of today? I really think this is good advice. Live life like you're dying. Hold on to this life with open hands and focus on who God is in your life. The uh, keyboard player can come join me, set the mood. So we're, we're about to get serious. Will you close your eyes with me for a second? I know everybody hates it when a preacher says close their eyes. So if, if you don't, it's okay. I'm not gonna come around and judge you on it or anything like that. But what, what I'm trying to do is just set a place where you cannot worry about the person beside you. Where you can just hear from the Lord. Let's just take a moment and just reflect a little bit on the difficult teaching that James has given us. And ask yourself, what plans do I have for tomorrow? If all I had was today, would I try to live out those plans? Would they be the priority in my life? And just, just ask the Holy Spirit to relax the tension in your body Make sure your hands are open, not clenched. And ask God to reveal to you the things that you love to control. Are those things that you love to control something that you would live? this was the only moment you had. Ask the Spirit to reveal to you how you use your money. Is J 
generosity at the heart of who you are? Are you willing to sacrifice for someone else's sake? Or when I mention the word money, does your fist begin to clench again? Ask the Spirit to release you of that tense feeling. Ask him to flood your body with joy, with patience and endurance, rather than stress and anxiety and fear at the mention of control and money. Father, as we go today, I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't, we wouldn't walk out this door thinking, oh, I need to do better. Because that's not James's intent here. He's not, he's not calling us to try harder, to work harder at something. He's calling us to be faithful, to rest in the fact that God knows what's best. And so, Lord, as we leave this place today, the things that your Spirit has revealed to each of us individually, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would remove the fear, would free us from the anxiety of trying to control all things, would bring a spirit of contentment into our hearts, a spirit of joy and kindness, Lord, we stand up against the enemy as he tries to press these, these things that James talks about into us. He wants us to need control. He wants us to love money. He wants us to be so worried about the outcome of things that it, that it just drives us crazy. And so, Lord, we speak against those things today. And we ask you, Father, to, to just flood your spirit into our hearts and our minds, fill this place with his presence. And that as we walk out the door today, we're not gonna try harder or work harder. We're just gonna rest in your presence with your spirit living in each of us. And we're gonna seek his voice. Father, I know there's people in this place that struggle with these very things. And so, Lord, I ask that you would be with them, that you would challenge them and mold them and shape them and make them new. Renew their minds, as Paul says in Romans, and free them of all oppression. Lord, help us to be the people that you call us to be. Not just in this moment, but in every moment of our lives. And Lord, may you bless this church. They sang this morning with your angels in heaven as you were all rejoicing in his presence. Mountain Park was part of that joy, was part of that worship this morning. And so Lord, I just pray a blessing over this church and the people who come to this church. May we be kind and loving and reach our neighbors so that they can know the good news of Jesus Christ and they can be freed from the oppression of control. May we be, Lord, those Jesus people. Heal those who need healing. Redeem those who need redeeming. And Father, as we go today, flood our hearts with your joy and your presence. And all God's people said, 
Amen. Amen. May you go in peace today and just try to open your hands. God bless you.